You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to another edition of Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm here on an away game with Simulcast. I'm here at the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Point of Care Ultrasound Division to talk about simulation and ultrasound. And I'm joined, of course, by Risa Lewis, who is the leader of this division, and a number of her staff who are going to take us through three articles looking at this interface between simulation and how it helps or not uh, point of care ultrasound training and practice. So we're going to start with an article which is titled, Can You Teach Yourself Point-of-Care Ultrasound to a Level of Clinical Competency? Evaluation of a Self-Directed Simulation-Based Training Program. And this is by Mackay and colleagues from Canada uh, in Curious, which is curious in itself. We'll talk a little bit more about that journal. But I'm going to uh, introduce our first guest, Kelly Goodsell, together with Zach Reisler. How are you, Kelly? Good. How are you doing? Good. Tell us what do you do here at the division. So I was uh, an ultrasound fellow here last year, and I stayed on this year as ultrasound faculty. Um, and I have just uh, started working with the medical students on the uh, ultrasound elective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Zach, tell us what do you do here. Thanks for having us. Um, so I am also ultrasound faculty. I did fellowship two years ago here at Jefferson. Stayed on, and I head the graduate medical education part of the division, so the residents. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. All right. Well, Kelly, did you want to tell us what they actually did in this study? Sure. Thank you. So this was a pilot study that included 14 second-year medical students at one particular institution in Canada. And basically, this was uh, a trial of a simulation-based self-directed ultrasound training curriculum. So the goal here was to see if students could achieve competence in uh, some basic POCA scans, which included cardiac, abdomen, aorta, and pelvis scans, using a simulation-based curriculum. So this really was simulation tech, um, completely self-directed, with no direct feedback. All right, so they did these online study modules. Then they had an introductory session, but that was as much about the research as it was about actually what they were learning. And then they went, off you go. Yes, correct. It sounds like they had this two-hour intro session, which just introduced the protocol and the equipment. And then from there, the participants just undertook this self-directed training program sort of through the year you know, um, with no clear timeline listed, but using these online Sonosim modules, as well as having access to a Vimidex simulator. Yeah, so on the face of it, they've got some good stuff, haven't they? I mean, the Sono system has good cases. It takes you through a range of clinical applications. Mm-hmm. And I know that CAE Vimedics uh, device has all this haptic feedback and very expensive simulator. So you would have thought this should be as good as it gets in terms of training. But it wasn't, as it turned out. No, it wasn't. So basically the, the protocol, the students were supposed to sort of achieve 12, uh, 10, excuse me, 10 scans in each category, um, for aorta, um, abdominal, cardiac, and pelvis. And at that point, they, this would trigger a live assessment where they would scan a model under the supervision of a POCUS trained faculty member. There would be no feedback during the session. And the the participants were scored sort of on their accuracy of image acquisition, interpretation, and their uh, clinical um, uh, like understanding of the images. 
And at that point, they would continue on the study, and when they reached 25 scans in each modality, they would trigger a second assessment. Now, what happened was the results were not very good. So the first assessment, um, every, all 14 participants completed phase one, but only four of the 14 were deemed competent in the aorta scan and two of 14 competent in the pelvis imaging, and nobody was competent in the cardiac or abdominal imaging. So this is pretty dismaying, really, isn't it? And not only did they not learn what they were supposed to, they actually didn't engage in the training. Mm. So it seems gadgets aren't enough. Uh, Maybe we can bring you in here, Zach. How do you account for this? Is it a factor about the study, or do you think this truly reflects what happens? Yeah, so I think that they talk about this, that the students kind of underestimated the amount of time uh, and workload needed to kind of complete the study. And, and that's what they say was the reason that the students uh, dropped out of the study. Uh, I think that there's a little bit more to it. I think that without any direct feedback or without any guidance, the students maybe were a little lost. And that's why they didn't kind of keep going. We don't get a little bit of positive reinforcement or any enforcement of positive or negative. I think it's easy to kind of forget that you're doing the project. Um, and they kind of mentioned this in their results that they found that in a syst- uh, systematic review from 2006, that really feedback and integration into the live curriculum were uh, two of the biggest things that helped with learning and helped with simulation. And they didn't really do any of that. So I think that they're kind of destined to fail from the beginning. So this... Uh, draws out what we know about learning, which is you need to be motivated as well as have the techniques of learning. Uh, But of course, Zach, you might say that, mightn't you? Because you're an instructor of these people, so you've got a bit of a vested interest. Uh, Do you actually still need an instructor to do that? Or do you think if they had some more automated feedback or some test-enhanced learning, uh, could that replace at least some of this? I think it can. And while you are right, I am an instructor of point of care ultrasound, so I don't want to lose my job to uh, AI. Um, I think that there is a role for it. And I think there's a role for simulation and the um, CAE machine, which we have one here, uh, I think really works to help instruct and teach and can be part of a, a broader curriculum. But I do think that having the hands-on training, having someone give you kind of that haptic feedback in real time really does add to the education and, and to the, um, the overall experience. Mm, I think so, and it adds to the motivation. I'm reminded of some other work that we've looked at, which is uh, learning laparoscopic surgical skills using box trainers. Again, there's some very fancy ones of these, and people have held out great hopes for self-directed learning. And we're one of my simulation fellows is currently involved in a study looking at inserting test-enhanced learning, which is I don't care how much practice you do, you have to come and do a series of tests. And there's no doubt that uh, assessment, because it also provides feedback, can be a powerful motivator as well. Uh, All right, Kelly, any other sort of thoughts on either their technique of doing this uh, or even the way it's published? I'm curious. Do you uh, know much about this journal? Well, I I do know that, uh, you know, a lot of studies that make it into Curious might not be published in other journals, which on one hand is great to be able to maybe see some new innovative concepts or, you know, new ideas that are just being flushed out. But it does mean that some of the protocols are not necessarily um, the most detailed. And Mm -hmm. and we definitely see some gaps here uh, in how 
you know, in their description of what exactly the protocol was, you know, we really don't get a sense of the timing of this, you know, how much time specific students were spending um, to get to those 10 scans that they were actually recording. And, you know, what which one they were spending more time with, you know, how much time were they spending on the Vimidex versus the Sonosim modules? You know, what was the spread between students in terms of how much time they were putting in and how perhaps people that did all 10 scans in the first week or the first month maybe did better than people that spread it out over longer. We just don't know. And it's also unclear if they really included, you know, normals and abnormals and um, in terms of the live scanning as well, like what you know, what they were actually doing and what they were seeing on these models. So you would have liked a little more granularity. And I think Mm -hmm. that's probably for a good reason. And that is that often in educational research, we are comparing something under the idea that it's the same thing as something else that's described as that. So to just say training on a simulator, you and I know mean that that can mean so many different things. So I think the detail is important. It's a timely reminder. Um, Just while we're thinking about where this got published, I also noticed that although they used some expensive equipment, that there were no financial disclosures. So the manufacturers of these uh, simulators didn't sponsor the research, but I imagine they're not entirely impressed with the results either. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, what about you, Zach? Any kind of final thoughts on this uh, piece? Yeah, so I think that I like that it it was a negative study that got published, that we can see that simulation may not work in all circumstances. And it's nice to have that information. And I, I think that it wasn't lost on me that we do have a bias in research that only published things or only positive things are published. And so there is a, a miss in the research. And I think that this was nice that we could see that this may not have worked. And for people going forward can try a different way, a different protocol, and maybe see if we can get some positive results using simulation and maybe adding in an introductory live course or more uh, hands-on sessions, but not as much as we do now. Yeah. So this is clearly going to be an evolutionary research field we're trying to find the place of the simulator not whether it is in or out but rather how does it augment the traditional approaches we've had all right well thank you both very much that's article two so i think our take-home simulcast listeners if you're into ultrasound this is probably highly pertinent but i think even if you're not and you do any kind of uh, skill training this is relevant and to think about which elements uh, can we capture with simulation and what kind of simulation do we mean thank you both Thanks very much for having us. You're listening to Simulcast. So for our next paper, I'm joined by Rishi Kalwani and Risa Lewis herself. And this is a paper looking at how good are some of these new pocket ultrasound devices, in particular for procedural skills training. Now, Risa, I'm going to ask you, because the name of this paper is Pocket-Sized Ultrasound Device for Internal Jugular Puncture, a randomized control study of performance on a simulation model, and this is by a French group, but it's in the Journal of Vascular Access, which I didn't even know existed. But it seems to me that this is one of the challenges when you're trying to follow literature in an area. Where do you look? So tell us, how did you find this one? Well, of course, there are the high-impact articles that all of us utilize, and those are, those are easy. Those are low-hanging fruit. Uh, every week, the Ultrasound Division reviews a few articles, and... Uh, we look for breadth as well as depth. So sometimes I'll look up a specific author or a friend who I think is well-published, 
uh, interesting case reports. Uh, in this situation, I, this is a bit of a PubMed search where I typed in ultrasound plus simulation. I was specifically looking for the purpose of this podcast to look at where the two areas, the Venn diagram comes together and there's a beautiful relationship. <laughs> she has to say that, simulcast listeners, of course. Uh, so to go through this in a bit more detail, I'm going to welcome Rishi to the podcast. How are you, Rishi? Good. How are you, Victoria? Good, good. Tell us, uh, what do you do here at uh, the Jefferson Point of Care Ultrasound so, Division? Uh, I'm uh, one of the fellows in ultrasound here, and so that's my role. All right. So this paper looks at a bit of cool technology, doesn't it? These uh, now pocket-sized ultrasound devices, plug the probe into your phone and off you go. So maybe before we even look at the study, um, this does seem a bit of a wave of trend. What do you think about it? I actually think it's a, a very interesting and, and significant trend. I think that there are several different devices that we've had exposure to that have been of value. And I think it'll actually, they're both cheaper and more flexible with regard to portability and availability. And so a lot of that is what's going to be really interesting from the future going forth um, in terms of. And if I can say, I think there are a lot of studies like this, and we will increasingly see these because people want to make sure that the conventional devices we're able to evaluate and use them for is going to translate to the portable devices. Yeah, and so you're right. As with any disruptive technology, invariably it's cheaper and easier, and the question is, is it as good for the purpose that the consumer wants it? And I guess we've seen that across a range of different industries and why we all now have iPhones instead of mainframe computers. It's, exactly. in fact, a similar question. Exactly. All right, so let's look at this study, which, as we've said, is looking at the performance of one of these devices for procedural uh, point-of-care ultrasound purposes. So, Rishi, take us through. What did they do in this study? So this was a single-center study of 20 ED attendings that were either randomized to use a pocket-sized uh, ultrasound device first versus conventional first. Um, and then what they actually tried to demonstrate, their primary outcome was the time between probe contact and reflex of blue liquid from the medium fidelity simulator that they were using. Um, and what they demonstrated was that there was no statistically significant difference between pocket-sized ultrasound versus conventional ultrasound. The other outcomes they were looking at were secondary outcomes related to image quality and success rate, which they defined as obtaining access within less than two minutes. Um, and there was not a significant difference statistically uh, with regard to any of those outcomes. Okay, so just to make that really clear, you pull out your simple probe attached to your phone for putting in your IJ line. Your time to puncture isn't going to be any slower. Your success rate isn't going to be any less. And your image quality is going to be essentially the same. Essentially, that's what they were attempting to demonstrate. What they showed was that the time it took for the pocket-sized ultrasound device to uh, obtain access on these simulators was 28 seconds versus 22 seconds for the conventional ultrasound device. Okay, now Risa tells me, Rishi, that you have a PhD and so you actually have a deal of statistical knowledge. So I'm going to have to ask you on trust, uh, were their statistics any good? They they were good in that they did an appropriate assessment in terms of demonstrating a comparison. They What they did show in the one figure that they plot here is that um, the median difference in time is not significantly different, but the pocket ultrasound device has a great deal more variability uh, with regard to the time it takes to acquire access relative to the conventional ultrasound device. And a lot of that may have to do with 
uh, user experience with these pocket sound ultrasound devices and the fact that there's not a lot of exposure to them. And so just becoming accustomed to them uh, may actually be variable uh, from person to person. So I think this is kind of interesting because in a way, uh, and certainly speaking from a simulation point of view, a lot of these central line simulators, to be honest, they're pretty easy. So I suppose the other way to look at this is these are experienced people who are good at doing this procedure anyway, who are probably going to be relatively quick and it isn't actually very hard. So I wonder whether we've actually got the right test for these devices yet. What do you think, Risa? Yeah, I think spot on. That's the question. There is, whenever we read an article, there's that question of so what? Uh, and this, there's a, there is a so what element of this article for me. And is this practice changing? Is this generalizable for our patient care environment? And, you know, I early on became skeptical of studies that are trying to prove time because uh, we're not talking minutes or hours or 30 minute increment differences. We're talking seconds of difference. So I'm not sure sometimes what the advantage is of a study that's looking at time. I realize that may not have been their sole purpose in this study, but I, I'm not, I'm not that impressed by studies that look at time, especially because we tried to perform a peripheral IV study in pediatric patients years ago looking at time and they didn't define this in the article what designated start time, what designated stop time. Is it when you're looking for the machine gathering your equipment? Is it the time that someone says go? Is it the time that you draw up your needle? So they don't define their start time. They did define their end time, which was puncture. And that sort of brings me to another question regarding this study. Like we're talking about the puncture. And yes, that's a start to see actually the bevel and to see because uh, they specifically used an in-plane uh, technique, which is longitudinal, which spoke to actually the experience of these providers, because most people will start out of plane uh, in a transverse access technique. So the fact that they use this technique uh, spoke to their level of experience. And at the end of the day, it's not, can you get a puncture with, with a, a flashback, is can you successfully place the line? Um, so back to the, the timing, I'm, I'm a little, uh, so what, and a little questioning of what was start what was stop? And at the end of the day, you know, uh, why is that a factor that we're really looking at? And I suppose the other thing that we were talking about earlier was just the test on a simulator. And I think you were talking about this description that they're using here of a medium fidelity simulator. Yes, Victoria, I want to actually turn the tables and ask if you can share with the audience a definition uh, of of this term. I think there is a traditional taxonomy about simulators in general relating to their level of technical complexity, which is often described as low, medium or high fidelity. I think that taxonomy has fallen way out of favour as we've started to think what simulation for rather than how complex is the piece of equipment that you're using to do it. And so we would now like terms like uh, physical realism or resemblance, because particularly for procedural skills, it really is about physical authenticity, whether that that's touch or feel or vision in this case. And so, but I think it allows someone who does simulation to think about a range of particular models. And what it would mean for this is there probably isn't anything fancy in the electronics, but there's some fake veins underneath some skin. And so it's uh, reasonably realistic in terms of the anatomy, but it probably isn't very realistic in terms of the feel or the anatomic variation, which you'd have to get a much higher end model to start to simulate, which people do have, and which you can certainly 
get with things like uh, virtual reality, you can start to use any anatomy that you want to design the challenge. Uh, so, I, But I think it speaks here in that I don't think it'd be too hard. And I think if you had an arm in this study that had no ultrasound, it would probably be as good. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, we've sort of suitably uh, been not that impressed, but I suppose to some level we should be impressed, uh, Rishi, because it would mean we can stop dragging that big machine to the bedside and just pull our thing out of our pocket and at least uh, get on with the IJ. Yeah, I would actually think that it's a good first step to take with regard to trying to demonstrate that that there may not be a meaningful difference. Um, As Risa sort of spoke to, whether or not timing specifically matters is one question. Um, but in terms of getting the ball rolling with regard to assessing these devices, I think it's a, it's an appropriate first step. And they do mention that the, the next step is to actually test this in, in real time on patients in patient care. Yeah, and not to at all discount the uh, the quality, the methodology, and what this paper showed. Uh, when we look at the way point of care sound literature started and what it became, we started with case uh, reports, then case series, then retrospective chart reviews, now prospective convenience samples, which is sort of, this is a little bit more in that category. And first people wanted to see, can emergency physicians measure an aorta? And is the diameter consistent with what was defined as a gold standard? For example, the CT scan. I think that's what they're doing here. They're looking to say, is PUD, the the portable device, when we compare it to CUD, the conventional device? And yes, audience, we found these terms very fun. And, you know, is it meeting what we're now considering the gold standard? And in that way, this paper was a big success. Yeah, I agree. I mean, all of these things are research steps, aren't they? Yeah. And I suppose, Risha, if I could pose a sort of forward-looking question, or maybe not, are there many studies emerging looking at PUD versus CUD in the uh, diagnostic thing? Because it would seem to me that's where we're going to tease out a lot more difference, perhaps. Yes. And in fact, I th- I would say that in terms of diagnostics, there that's where we're seeing most of the literature. Uh, what we're seeing is other special specialist colleagues hospitalists, internal medicine, perhaps EMS, the portable devices are very attractive for some very obvious reasons. But people want to know that they are going to make that diagnosis of a pericardial effusion with the same accuracy, sensitivity, specificity. So uh, procedures, we're not seeing as much yet, uh, but diagnostics is where we're really seeing these portable devices getting tested. All right. Well, there you go, simulcast listeners, something to look forward to as we continue to track that interface between uh, point-of-care ultrasound and simulation, which I suspect will continue as long as we work with Risa Lewis. So I'd like to thank both Risa and Rishi for your time today. Thanks, Victoria. Victoria, thank you so much. You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So our next article really looks at the interesting thoughts around how we build simulators from scratch and in particular how we build them cheaply so that they can still be effective for our educational needs and the title of this article is Kunafa Knife and Play-Doh is an efficient and cheap simulator to teach diagnostic point-of-care ultrasound and this is by Abu Zidane and Sevek a couple of authors from the United Arab Emirates, and it's in the World Journal of Emergency Surgery, just out 2019. So I'm joined by three discussants for this article. Uh, Arthur Au, how are you, Arthur? I'm good. How are you? What do you do here at Jefferson? So I'm the Ultrasound Fellowship Director here um, and the Associate Ultrasound Director. Brilliant. So been into this for a while. Dan Mersch is another guest. How are you, Dan? I'm doing very well. 
one of the ultrasound fellows here at Thomas Jefferson. And Mark McGee, how are you, Mark? Good, how are you? I'm one of the ultrasound faculty here. All right, so this is one of these articles that really seeks to, uh, I guess, show us an innovation that we might think about using ourselves. But where they start with this is saying that it's particularly important to build simulators that can be used in low-resource settings, as this is something that we see uh, across applications, not just for point-of-care ultrasound. But I am interested, Arthur, they make the particular point that in low-resource settings, uh, ultrasound might be particularly useful because people don't have access to things like CT scan. Uh, Did you want to speak to that? Uh, CT span and in a lot of places, even uh, even plain radiograph um, is difficult to come by. Um, so during my fellowship training, um, I spent some time in Sierra, Sierra Leone um, training some providers in a small clinic there on how to use point of care ultrasound. Um, and the closest x-ray or even CT they had um, was a three-hour drive away. Um, over bumpy dirt roads. And if the rain was uh, coming down, it was like a 10-hour ride, which was impossible to get to. Um, so really having any form of diagnostic imaging um, was really important there. Mm-hmm. So I think that speaks to why this actually is a pretty good idea. And I think as we see with the best simulation, it's designed for a purpose in mind. And this actually has a sort of population-based purpose uh, as well. All right. Well, uh, Dan, maybe you can tell us what they actually did here. Sure. So the PICA question here was they took fifth-year medical students and gave them an educational seminar on uh, point-of-care ultrasound and methods of transducer manipulation, as well as how the blade of the ultrasound cuts various anatomy. Uh, They did this and then looked at uh, whether they felt that the validity, simplicity, uh, their engagement and enjoyment, and then the cost and portability of this entire program that involved what they called a kunafa knife, which many of us may be more familiar with a spackle knife used to spread materials over wall holes and things like that. And then also use Play-Doh to uh, simulate the aorta and the IVC during their training. Uh, They felt that this was particularly effective because the blade of the knife could mimic the output beam of the ultrasound, in particular the phased array probe. They also noted that the width of the blade was consistent with the one millimeter that we are familiar with when we actually use the phased array probe uh, so that we could actually take slices of various anatomy such as the aorta and the IVC. They enrolled a total of 88 fifth-year medical students and then uh, surveyed them on how they felt the validity, simplicity, enjoyment, cost, and portability were found. And they found positive results among all uh, aspects of their survey. So their conclusion was that this is not only a cost-effective, but also useful and educationally effective modality that can be used in resource-limited environments. Mm -hmm. So I want to sort of drill down a little bit because it's always tough on an audio-only podcast to get the visual image of what this looks like. So they've got this knife which has a handle that you sort of grip that does look slightly like an ultrasound probe and then it goes a fan-shaped blade which then goes into a box. So you hold the top of the knife, the blade goes down to inside the box and inside the box are a couple of little cylindrical pieces of Play-Doh. One's red and that's the altar and one is blue and that's the IVC. Have I got this right? Yep. Yep. 
And that seems to me that people would have been trying to do this for a while to sort of demonstrate to students. Do other people make these kinds of interesting simulators to demonstrate similar points? I think in the United States we'll use a $150,000 robot to simulate this type of anatomy rather than taking $5 worth of, you know, Toys R Us materials. Uh, But that's more of a culture issue than an actual scientific issue. I will say, in uh, actually here, we um, used 3D printers at one point to build 3D models of hearts um, that you could disassemble in um, sort of the planes that we do echoes in um, to help uh, learners understand sort of what the the image they were looking at and how that correlates to the 3D image of the uh, of what they you know in the actual anatomy they were seeing because that sort of like mental manipulation of two of 2D to 3D is one of the things that I think learners when they're first starting out an ultrasound find to be one of the most difficult things. So I think it's actually kind of ingenious and I don't know, it's something I probably am going to try to use in the future. Well, you can certainly see uh, maybe here where your ultrasound is what you live and breathe, but for many other people, they're simply trying to make connections between anatomy and ultrasound or cross-sectional imaging of any sort. And I know my colleagues uh, back where I work, uh, the anatomy people are often the most interested in using the sonosim because it helps them get exactly what you're talking about, this conceptual translation between the 2 and the 3D. All right, so we've got an idea about this model. Uh, maybe can we explore a little more then, uh, and you might do this for us, Mark, about their evaluation. I mean, this is always hard. You know, you spend your life creating this beautiful thing. You think it's great, and, of course, your students are wrapped up in it, and uh, that seems to be the approach they've taken to their evaluation. Yeah, I wouldn't say there's a lot of hard science behind the results that they um, provided us with today, so it, it's more just sort of... Um, describing their experiences and their sum, the, their summation of what the students' experiences with it were. Um, so they felt like it was a valid tool, not because it met any statistical analyses, but because it seemed that the students understood better after using this model how the ultrasound works and um, how the image planes work and how um, ma- how they manipulate the probes and talk about manipulating the probes in the right ways. Um, I agree that they talk about the simplicity of the tool. I, I agree it is a very simple simple tool um, that seems like it could be pretty effective. Um, They talk about enjoyment, which um, I'm going to be honest, I don't think I see a lot in the ultrasound literature and medicine literature in general talking about enjoyment. Um, And I guess this, uh, the Kanafa knife has a different purpose there than it does for spackling walls in the United States. Um, I kind of want to try this dessert now. Um, Yeah. So just to expand on that, this is a dessert in the Middle East. And so this knife is used to cut it into pieces. And I agree that would have quite a positive connotation. (laughs) Um, and so they talk about how, you know, this, the students get excited, I guess, because they're using this tool that is for a very different purpose in their medical education. Um, it's, they note that it's cost effective, that the total cost of the model is less than 10 US dollars, um, which agreed in the setting of a low resource, um, setting, or honestly, even in our own institution, we have, um, upwards of 300 medical students in a class. Um, if you, if you want to teach medical students ultrasound, it becomes cost prohibitive, particularly at numbers like that. So you have to think of novel, cheap ways to, to approach education. Um, so $10 for an ultrasound simulator seems pretty, pretty nice from that standpoint. And then they talk about portability and st- sustainability. I mean, it's a box, it's a knife and it's Play-Doh. I think that's all, all apparent. Um, at, again, at the end of the day, they weren't doing surveys. They weren't, you know, checking statistical analyses or seeing accuracy of, um, ability to obtain ultrasound images just before or after. So it was a little bit, you know, of a softer um, 
uh, assessment piece, but um, I think I see what they were getting at. Yeah, and look, I think we see a fair bit of this in the simulation literature. You find these things actually quite attractive because here's just an idea you can try and you're not out for the level of proof that we're maybe used to with some of our you know, pharmacology studies, uh, but we're still very interested in the idea. And uh, for simulcast listeners, if you're still confused about what a kunafa knife is, uh, we'll put a photograph of that um, up on our website for you to have a look at. So I suppose it kind of uh, begs the question as a disruptive technology, maybe you could uh, help us sort of close this out, Arthur. You know, should we be actually getting a little bit more uh, disciplined about the disruptive kind of technology that we can use just for applications like this? As you say, maybe this has more application than we thought, given that we have access to fancy stuff. Yeah, I think uh, anytime you can uh, expand the range of experience for learners, especially when they're trying to figure out a new technology, I think different modalities and uh, different options, especially when you can simplify something to bring a disruptive technology down to something as basic as a child's toy and a dessert knife, um, I think it makes it much more understandable and relatable. Mm, I agree. And I love in their uh, evaluation, they've got a um, lovely phrase here that I'm just going to read out because I think it should be in more articles. Using Play-Doh is fun for them, as most properly it reminds them of their childhood. So learning becomes play and fun instead of rigid science. All right, gentlemen, we might go off and enjoy some play ourselves, albeit in the context of work. So thank you all for your time on the podcast today. Thank you, thank you very much. You're listening to Simulcast. 